There's so much we can learn about ourselves when we think about trees. Did you know that in Psalm 1, God says you shall be like a tree? When we follow Jesus, it begins when we are like a tiny seed or a sapling, firmly planted and too weak to stand on its own. As we grow up in the truth, we send our roots down. They keep us fed and strong. But beware, becoming what God created us to be isn't always easy. There are bad forces that work against us, and it takes faith and discipline to get through them. But once you mature and discover your gifts, you grow fruit. Delicious fruit that you can share with everyone around you. And there's nothing more beautiful than watching how your life, which started out as a little seed, can multiply into the lives of others. This could be you, a majestic tree, going deep, growing wide, living tall, and bearing lots and lots of fruit. Amen. Thank you so much, John and Mike, for uh, that great reminder that indeed our Lord is with us. Uh, he is the one who's in control. He is the one who guides us. And I hope that's an encouragement for you this morning. Um, welcome back. If you're with us, good morning. Uh, we are in week 12 of our series, Cultivating the Christian Life. And if you're just joining us today, you've missed a fabulous series. Uh, if you want to go back and catch up, you can go to our website, uh, but fair warning, we are coming to the end of this series, and so you have a lot of ground uh, to cover. Two weeks left after today. Uh, and we've moved into the final phase of our series, the maturing phase of the Christian life. First, we talked about what it means to be planted. Second, we talked about being rooted. Third, we started to grow. Fourth, we were maturing. And now, now it's time to multiply and expand. And that means rule number 11 is crucial. You have to become salt and light and make an impact. Become salt and light and make an impact. If you have your workbooks here or at home, you can join me on page 156 if you'd like to take some notes, and that's where the chapter uh, begins on this topic. Uh, but this is the phase where we get the message outside our walls because we recognize the gospel is a gift. It's not just for us, but it's for the whole world. However, it seems like getting the message out is a bit more challenging these days. Because people outside the church, and sometimes even inside the church, have a perception of Christians. And so I want you to imagine this morning what it would be like to be stuck in an elevator with somebody who doesn't like you. Have you ever had this experience? Right? Maybe you look like that, that woman right there. You walk into an elevator at a hotel, let's say, and you have 10 floors to travel to the lobby, and in walks somebody who you just can't stand. Can somebody say awkward? Yes, that's right. Amen. Awkward. That's exactly what happened to David Kinneman when he was attending a Christian conference in London a number of years ago, and he recalls the scene in his book, Good Faith. He says, I was attending a conference at a hotel in a very posh part of London, and on my elevator ride down to the lobby, a fellow hotel guest asked me, because he noticed all the people around, hey, what kind of event is happening here? And David Kinneman replied, um, it's, it's a conference for church leaders from all over the world. And then the man paused and looked at him and smugly replied, hey, I have an idea for your Christian conference. Maybe you should hold it in a less expensive place than London and give the money you saved to the poor. I'm guessing by that gasp you understand that was kind of awkward for him to say that. David Kinneman's uh, attempt afterwards to explain the benefits of having the conference at this hotel did not swayed this middle-aged skeptic who left the elevator on the next floor, ending a very rough conversation. Well, maybe this has also happened to you. It turns out the next morning, uh, David Kinneman ran into this guest again at the, ho at the hotel's breakfast buffet, and he greets him politely. The man grunts, <clears throat> hello, and then uh, he asks him again, hey, did you come up with an answer to my question? Why are you guys here wasting money? And again, David tried to explain the many benefits of having the conference at the hotel, including that they're actually saving money because it's close to the church. But the man just cut him off and said this, there's only one good answer. Don't waste your money. Your priorities are screwed up. And then he proceeded to turn his full attention to his breakfast, indicating that the conversation was done. Now, have you ever had an experience like this? Now, 
you know, it might not have been at a conference being held at a hotel, but maybe you were having lunch with a skeptical coworker, or in the someone in your school cafeteria, or a random pe- person on the subway, let's just say. You bring up your Christian faith, and the conversation takes a, a steep turn down south. There's baggage associated with not necessarily Jesus, but Christians and the church. And it does seem like we live in a hostile society towards Christians, which assumes that we are hypocrites. Now, this presents a pretty big barrier when attempting to persuade people to the veracity and the benefits of the Christian faith. And part of this is related to the worldview divide within our culture. Uh, Many years ago in America, there was a basic understanding of the Christian faith, and the church was viewed favorably. But now, that's really not so true. You probably sense this in your own life, and I would say you are right. In fact, author Natasha Crane confirms this reality in her book, Faithfully Different, Regaining Biblical Clarity in a Secular Culture. One of the best books I've read recently, i got to say. The first chapter of the book explains that it's no longer normal to be considered a Bible-believing Christian in the culture today. And this is primarily related to the influence of secular culture on the worldview of today's, uh, today's society. And so what she does is she looks at research from Pew, from the American Culture and Faith Institute, Arizona Christian University, and the Barna Group, and this is what she finds. She finds that, that in America, seven out of ten people uh, say they're Christian. Seventy percent say they're Christian. However, when you dig deeper into it, this is what she says. She says, estimates of the percent of Americans committed to an actual biblical worldview range from 6%, according to Barna, all the way up to 29%, according to Pew, with a significant generational gap noted between millennials and older adults. Now, I want you to take that in because that's probably something you're you're aware of, but only 6% of people having a biblical worldview, 6%. And if you look further at the research, she goes on to say, that includes professing Christians. In other words, those holding a a true biblical worldview, even among Christians, is actually a very small minority, and I study this stuff, and I got to tell you, I was, I was pretty floored by those findings. As David Kinnaman points out in his book, uh, biblical Christians are not just a minority, they're being viewed as irrelevant and extreme for their beliefs. Now, the reason I bring that up at the beginning here is simply because I want to ask, how are you supposed to be salt and light when that is the cultural landscape? How are you supposed to be salt and light? And to answer that question, I want to turn our attention to Jesus this morning, always a good place to start, right? Um, Because Jesus told us this would happen. If you read his famous Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, you will see that Jesus begins with something called the Beatitudes, where he outlines how his followers should live differently in this world. But at the end of the Beatitudes, very interestingly, Jesus says this. He says, blessed are what? Are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. This is the last thing he says in the Beatitudes. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In other words, people may hate you and persecute you. But notice he says this, that they will do this because of our righteousness. And so there's an assumption here that we will be faithful to God's call, that we'll be doing good in society, and even that might bring persecution. Now, we're not at the point in American society where Christians are being thrown in jail for their beliefs, but, but you probably sense holding certain biblical beliefs has social consequences. And Jesus is saying here, this may come. This may come. And right after this, he's going to famously go on to talk about how we're called to be salt and light. Or as Natasha Crane puts it, we're called to be faithfully different. And so for the rest of our time this morning, I want you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, verse 13 to 16, and I want to unpack what it means to be salt and light in a dark, decaying world. Because what Jesus says is that when you're salt and light, that is when you make an impact. So how do you make an impact in today's world? Well, Jesus calls us to pursue three goals, and I'm going to voice them this way. He says, you need to develop an attractive taste. Then you need to display an alternate society. And you do that for the purpose of pointing people to active glory. Attractive taste, alternate society, active glory. Before we unpack each of those, let's pray this morning. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your goodness and your grace in our lives. Thank you for the way that you love us. Thank you for your sacrifice 
on the cross, Lord. And I pray for my friends who are uh, here with me today, who are listening later on, Lord. I ask that you would just uh, move on our hearts, that we would be different people in a world that is dark. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so first, first, if you're going to make an impact, I'm just going to simply say your life has to be tasty. Your life has to be tasty. And I want you to think about your least favorite food today. Maybe it's Brussels sprouts, because I got to tell you, I hate these things. Okay, my wife has cooked them every which way, and I'll, I'll choke them down for the sake of health, but in no way, shape, or form do these things make my mouth water. And if you're out there and you love Brussels sprouts, God bless you. You have a special place in the kingdom of God this morning. If you want to make an impact in someone's life, you need to be the opposite of Brussels sprouts. You need to be something like this, nice, juicy, mmm, that's right, Get the, it's a hey, summer's coming, the grill's coming out. Yeah, you want to be a food that makes your mouth water, you need to salivate. In fact, I want you to turn to your neighbor right now and say to them, I need to be tasty. Go. I need, that's right, tasty. We got some tasty people out there this morning. Now, Jesus understands this concept very much, and he says this in Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. He says, you, Christians, you, his followers, are the salt of the earth. You are the salt of the earth. And I have to say up front that I also love salt. Salt makes everything better, especially when there's something sweet combined with it. Some, we got some salt and sweetie, salty and sweet people out there, right? Yeah, you love that stuff combined. Now, salt also makes your blood pressure higher, so be careful, um, but the reason salt is incorporated into almost every food imaginable is that it draws out the flavor. It draws out the flavor. It makes the food better. Now, in the ancient world, salt had, had a couple purposes. Uh, the first was that it acted as a preservative. Because in today's world, we use salts almost exclusively as a condiment to flavor meat and vegetables. But in a world where there was no refrigerators or freezers, the only way to prevent decay of meat was to just drench it with salt. But secondly, salt does make food taste better. It adds a kick to your food, and it makes you want more. It makes your mouth water. I'll give you an example, another food example. Have you, has anybody ever purchased a soft pretzel from Wawa? Okay, now if you don't love salt, I see that in the back, thank you. Uh, I see that hand. Uh, if you don't love salt, soft pretzels, I, I really don't know what's wrong with you. Um, <laughs> sorry, I'm being judgmental up here. Now, <laughs> you may have noticed that the people at Wawa often package two soft pretzels into a package. And I am convinced the reason is that the marketers know that once you have one pretzel, it's really difficult not to have the second one, which means you're willing to pay just a little bit more to have that second soft pretzel. Now, pretzels have salt on them. A pretzel without salt, it's okay. But a pretzel with salt is like a slice of heaven on earth. Now, here's the interesting thing I find about this. When I have a pretzel like this from, from Wawa or wherever, I don't turn to my wife and say, man, babe, that was really, really good salt. I don't say, man, that was the best salt I've ever had in my life. No, I say that pretzel was delicious because the salt made the pretzel better. Or in the words of George Costanza, these pretzels are making me thirsty because the salt makes you thirsty. Salt enhances flavor Salt prevents decay. And Jesus uses this metaphor because the same thing is true in society at large. We are living, this is the truth, we are living in a society that is decaying. We are living in a society that's decaying. And because we're talking about salt this morning, I thought it would be appropriate if I brought my salt shaker with me today. Maybe you have a salt shaker like this. It's really not a shaker, right? Sometimes it might come out, but it's more of a grinder, See, to get the salt out of the shaker grinder, you have to turn the knob like this, spread it all over the place, right? You actually have to exert some effort. You have to actively empty the salt. And if Christians are going to be the salt of the earth, Jesus says, we should be emptying ourselves out in society both to prevent decay and to add good flavor to the world. Now, what does that look like, you might say? Charles Colson uh, was famously a member of the Nixon administration back in the 70s, and he went to jail for his participation in the Watergate scandal. And in the process, he became a born-again Christian. Now, later in life, he started ministries uh, like Prison uh, Fellowship and a, a Center for Worldview Training for Christians 
because his passion was to see Christians live out their faith and impact every sphere of life for the gospel and for the common good. In his best-selling book, How Now Shall We Live, Colson outlines several areas where Christians can sprinkle salt and prevent decay. He's applying this to all areas of life. And here's just a few examples. Morality. Morality. Now, that's not just to say that Christians should impose their beliefs on society at large, but we can advocate for moral issues that are good for all people. In fact, the reason God gave the Ten Commandments to the Israelites was because those principles benefited society at large, right? Loving your neighbor is good for society. Entertainment. Colson was an advocate for the creation of good art that shows people what's good and true and beautiful in our world. And so he says Christians can add salt in an industry where there's moral decay and loose values. Education. Colson writes, education is one of the ways we seek to reverse the effects of the fall and restore humanity to its original dignity and purpose. So he encourages Christians to enter this field and redeem education by adding salt. Business. Right? Maybe, maybe you're asking yourself, what would it look like for me to be salty in my business? Now, don't take that the wrong way. I know it has, it's got a double entendre to it. Um, but if you run your own business, if you own your own business, if you work in a business, how can you preserve it from decay and add good flavor for the common good of others that points people to Jesus? Because salt prevents decay, salt enhances flavor. And that's what Christians are called to do. And when people see the difference in you, they want to know why. So Jesus offers a warning to his followers. He says this in, um, in verse 13. He says, But if the salt has lost its taste, how shall, it, how, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Now notice he makes two counterpoints here, right? He says, first, even if you're salty, you can lose your taste. And when that happens, secondly, you won't make a difference. In other words, being salty is intrinsically linked to making an impact in this world. And in order to understand this image, you have to understand how salt was used in the ancient world. Because during Jesus' time, salt did not look like my, uh, my salt shaker grinder right here. This is what Jesus pulled out when he was giving this image. Salt was actually a rock that was dug up from the ground. And if water then came and washed through that rock, it would dissolve the sodium chloride, which is what we use for table salt, leaving the rock lacking flavor. So Jesus' point is this. You have to maintain your distinctiveness as my followers. In other words, you have to be in the world, but not of the world. You have to be in the world, but not of the world. Don't let the world's values wash through you and remove your distinctiveness. Now, again, you might say, well, what does that look like, right? How, how do I keep my distinctive flavor? And, and I think there's at least two errors that Christians often make. So think again about salt. Yes, salt draws out flavor in food, but it is possible to become too salty. It's possible to become too salty. In other words, if in our efforts to reach the lost, we seek to become too appealing to the world, we can lose our distinctiveness through accommodation, we compromise. And instead of offering the healthy food that people need, we give them comfort food. Don't appeal so much that you lose your distinctiveness. Second, we can become influenced ourselves. And as much as we want to disciple people and let them know Jesus, the world is also attempting to disciple people with its messages. And so Natasha Crane, again, is helpful here. In, in that book, Faithfully Different, she does a wonderful job of defining a, Christ, a, sec, I'm sorry, a secular worldview and why, and why its messages are so attractive to Christians, even Christians. She, she defines it this way. She says, secularism is an umbrella term for a variety of worldviews that ultimately function the same way without, without, um, without a, a commitment to, a, uh, to the authority of a religion and its gods. And this mindset is all over the place. And sometimes even Christians are caught up in the messages. Why, why are his messages so attractive? She lists four points. She says, this is the message of the secular worldview. Number one, feelings are the ultimate goal, or the ultimate guide, I should say. In other words, the message out there in the culture is just follow your heart. Right? Follow, follow your heart. It won't lie to you. Uh, you find your meaning inside yourself. You are your own authority. If you watch a show, you listen to a song, this message is everywhere. 
And then secondly, happiness is the ultimate guide. Your feelings determine your happiness. That's, I'm sorry, that's your ultimate goal. So ask yourself, do you believe that? Is, is the goal of life just simply to be happy? Or is it to be holy and find your joy in Christ? Third, judging is the ultimate sin. And what is the critique that's leveled against most Christians? Right? We are judgmental. We are judgmental. But this is a bit of a nuanced point. Because while we certainly should, be, we certainly should avoid appearing that we're better than someone else, what the world often means when it says that Christians are judgmental is that the moral beliefs you hold, as put forth in the Bible, are uncomfortable. God can't tell me how to live. How dare you? And then God, of course, is the ultimate guess. Because in a secular worldview, if you believe that God even exists, he certainly does not want, does not want to be or shouldn't be involved in our everyday lives. So look at that list and ask yourself, do I believe any of these points? Because if so, you might want to evaluate whether the secular worldview is influencing you and hindering your ability to have a salty impact on society. The way we feel and our view of happiness may not ultimately be what is best for us. In fact, when we always focus on our feelings and our happiness, we can become selfish. We should not be judgmental but being brave enough to state hard truths may actually be the best way of loving the other person. And of course, we don't need to guess who God is. He has revealed himself. So ask, how am I living faithfully different in this world? Don't let your saltiness, don't lose your saltiness by buying into the world's system. We stay salty by resting on the rock itself, Jesus, our Savior. Because what the world needs is more salt that's out there. All throughout the world, salt needs to be sprinkled. And so Jesus says, you and I are the salt of the earth. When you choose to engage your community for the common good, the world will be blessed because decay will stop. Lives will flourish. And that's why Jeremiah writes to the people of Israel in exile. He says this, he says, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. In other words, invest in your community for the common good. Be salt, be different. Where's God calling you? Now here at NBC, we're constantly trying to think of ways we can be salt and light in a dark world, and I thought of just a couple examples of things that, that are coming up or, or have happened in the past. We have our annual hair-raising Easter party where people get to come and just be the hands and feet of Jesus for a lot of people in the community that come in here. Uh, we have an underground sessions event where we seek to discuss important issues beyond our walls. We host a 9-11 service with civic leaders in the community. Charter Day, a big street fair in town that's happening soon. In addition, I have just heard stories of people in our body reaching out to their neighbors with activities like camping or something called pickleball, or people in our body showing hospitality to their neighbors by inviting them into their homes for meals and conversations, because we're allowed to do that again, or feeding the poor. You know, the list could just go on and on and on. Church, keep being different. And if people think you're weird for being different, that's okay. Be weird. You have permission. Jesus says, be salt. Because when we're different, when there's an attractive taste in our lives, people will want to know more. We are the light that can point them to the truth. And that's point number two. We display an alternate society. We display an alternate society. Now, in verse 14, Jesus gives this second metaphor of what he is calling us to. He says this. He says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. So salt seeks to preserve and flavor society, but the image of light makes it quite clear that we should be visibly different people in our world. So that's why Jesus says that a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. New York City is at sea level, but imagine if New York City was on top of a mountain. You could not miss the lights from a distance no matter where you are. The city can't be hidden. And there's a few implications from Jesus' statement here. First, he's talking about his followers. 
So later in John's gospel, Jesus is going to apply this title to himself. And the natural connection would be this. We are the light that is pointing people to the true light. And so second, if light is needed, the world has to be in utter darkness. And yes, we live in a world full of darkness. And there's many times where that can be scary. It kind of reminds me of when I was a little boy. So my grandmother lived next door to me, and we had this large wooded area behind our house that kind of looked like that at night. And my family always owned dogs. My family loves dogs. Um, And I was often tasked with taking them out to do their business in this large wooded area at night. Um, Why they did this, I don't know. I must have been a glutton for punishment. Um, But I would open the door, the dog would bolt for the woods, and I would be left chasing after him in the dark. And it was so dark that I wouldn't be able to see where the dog went. And in that moment, I would just stand there at the foot of the woods here. It's just dark. It's dark everywhere. I couldn't see anything. And I'd, I'd look around me wondering if there was, there was going to be a monster that attacked me or, or some creepy dude would just wander out of nowhere and try to get me. And then I realized, being the forgetful little kid that I was, that there was a flashlight in my pocket and I would pull it out and turn it on. And I would shine it around and I would try to find the dog and eventually I'd, I'd, get, I'd get the dog <clears throat> and I would use this flashlight to lead the dog back, you know, back to the house. And what I realized later on is that this small little light in my hand was a tool to light the way back to the brighter light of the house. It allowed me to get over scary terrain. It showed me the way. And, and that is our role in impacting the world. We are meant to show the world an alternate society that is so attractive and bright that it helps people find the true light of the world. Now, people are often attracted to the, the glitz and the glamour of cities like New York and Los Angeles. And, and those cities promise what? They promise fame and wealth and significance. But we, the church, are called to be a better city that can offer true fulfillment. How? Verse 14 says this, Jesus says, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. Now, in the ancient world, they didn't have flashlights like this. They would have a candle powered with oil. And and you would think, reading this, how silly would it be to to light a candle, wasting precious oil by putting a a basket over top of it? And even today, I, I was asking myself this question this week. Why would I turn on a flashlight like this let it lead me through a dark woods and then eventually, like, cover it over with my hand. Why would I do that? And the only reason I thought that I would do that is because, to some extent, I was afraid somebody was going to see me. I was afraid somebody was going to find me because they would see the light and be like, oh, there they are. And, and this, I think this may have been Jesus' most convicting point because I think he's asking, why would you hide your light? I'm calling you to be visibly different, but you hide the light because you recognize that there's a cost to following Jesus. There's a cost to following him. What does he say in John chapter 15, verse 18? Jesus said, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. He says, the world will hate you, even, even if you do morally good things. Because you remember that story I told about, about David Kinnaman at the beginning? He was attending this conference where a bunch of Christians were trying to get together to figure out how to impact the world, and the hotel guest was still angry at him. Even if you do things that help people, the world may still hate you because you're doing it for Jesus. And you say, well, Pastor Bob, hold on a second, what? What do you mean? Why, why would somebody hate me for doing good? Well, we live in a culture that loves to shame. Right? If you ask somebody, if you are somebody who chooses not to shame others or to forgive others, maybe the world will hate you for that. You might get shamed yourself. If you're somebody who takes an ethical stand at school, maybe you refuse to or work, you refuse to cheat on a test or cut corners on a sale, people might get angry at you. See, sometimes making the moral choice according to God's standards, well, that can earn you some enemies and ridicule. Now, let's be clear. This this is not a license to be belligerent, unkind, or combative. No. Uh, If the world hates us, the world should hate us for the right reasons, 
right? The gospel itself is an offensive message because it talks about sin. It talks about judgment. It talks about repentance. And if people hate us for that, their quarrel is above our pay grade. Our calling is to be the light that points people to the greater light. See, Jesus says, don't be afraid. Don't hide your light. Live visibly different. Now, again, what does that look like? Well, the Apostle Peter, I think, is helpful here because he wrote a letter to the church in exile. He says, you're aliens, you're outcasts, you're sojourners in your day. In fact, I think Peter's first epistle speaks beautifully to where we're at in our world as a worldview minority this morning. Do you know how Peter opens his letter? He reminds the Christians that they have been born again to a living hope. Angels long to understand what we understand. He tells the Christians to remember that they have been called out of darkness into his marvelous light. We can understand the glory of who Jesus is. It should radiate from our lives. And then he gives instructions on living visibly different. What does he say? He says, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Now you say, why does he say that? Because he's saying, yes, I know it's hard. Yes, I know you're living in a land that's not your own. Your citizenship is in heaven. I know you long to be there, church, but, but before you get there, abstain from the passions of the flesh. What? What does he mean? It's, it's an odd phrase. I think what he's saying is this. Your holiness makes you distinct. Your holiness makes you distinct. A life of integrity, a life marked by moral purity in our dark world will set us apart. And friends, many times the church misses the mark on this because we we say, oh, you know what? Sin's not a big deal. God is gracious. He's going to forgive me. Yes, he will. He calls you to repentance, but yes, he will forgive you. But that does not mean we get to live however we want. Paul talks about that in Romans 6. And the world is watching. They're looking constantly for some way to discredit the message of the gospel when Christians fall. When a Christian leader falls, look at how they're covered in the press. The press is like a pack of wolves, like, yes! God is concerned about our holiness. Abstain from the passions of the flesh, because they're going to get you in trouble. Peter continues, he says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So how do you live visibly different? You conduct yourselves honorably even among outsiders. In other words, show all people respect. And that's something that's sorely missing in our culture today. We don't respect one another. We're always looking for ways to tear people down. And if Christians are going to show the world an alternate society, that principle needs to begin within the body of Christ. Right? Paul writes to the Galatians. He says, don't bite and devour one another. Right? An alternate society, the light of the world, shows respect for members of the family and for the outsiders, even if they speak against you. Actions speak louder than words. And I know a lot of Christians out there, who's, they're, they're, they talk a big game but they don't back it up with the way that they live. You know, we think we're building the kingdom by rushing to proclaim the gospel to those sinners that are out there. And don't get me wrong, that that we we are called to do that. That is super important. We're going to get into that next week. But we should not seek or we should not love to be the bullhorn guy. Do you know who the bullhorn guy is? He's the guy who stands in Times Square and preaches at a bunch of people he or she doesn't know, telling them they're they're going to hell. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't speak prophetically to our culture, but I am saying that Christians shouldn't always rush to the gospel proclamation devoid of relationship, because the harder yet more effective tactic may be to lay the groundwork with gospel demonstration, showing people the good deeds in our lives and in how we live. Then they can hear. And when they hear, their lives will be transformed on the day of visitation, When Jesus returns, we are called to be salt and light, to do good in society, and to shine brightly before a watching world. And I know in today's world you're saying, and we talked about this already, you know, we're a worldview minority. It seems like people are out to get us. It it can feel like you're standing alone in a dark forest, like that little boy I told before. But Jesus simply says, Don't be afraid, don't fear the consequences. I am the true light, and I will be with you. 
And in the end, it's going to be okay. We know the end of the story. Show the world something different. Season the world with salt, and people will hunger for more. Shine brightly, and people will follow you along the path. Some will hate you, yes, but some won't. Their eyes may be opened. And that gets us to the final point, the point of active glory. You see, church, we are called to be different, not just for the sake of being different, but for a reason. Jesus says it this way in Matthew 5, 16. He says, in the same way, salt and light, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. He says, yes, you're the salt of the earth. Yes, you're the light of the world. Don't hide your light. Why? Because when people see your good deeds, what are they going to do? They're going to praise God. They will give glory to your heavenly Father. Author Elliot Clark puts it this way. He says, Christians aren't just different for the sake of being different. The goal of our evident love and godliness is that others will recognize our good deeds. Our lives are different for a reason, to be a window display to God's nature with the dual purpose of their salvation and God's greater glory. So church, don't hide your light. Actively live it out. When you do good deeds, you are bringing glory to God. When you do good deeds, outsiders will be drawn to the glory of God. It's an active faith. Be different, he says. Teach your children that it is okay, and in fact, it is our calling to be different. We're called to an active glory that points people to the true light of the world. Now, I can think of no better way uh, to illustrate this than to share some stories from the front lines And so this morning, we're privileged to have one of our world partner missionaries with us, and I'm going to invite them up on stage. The the Hanovers, many of you might know them, Kurt and Jana and family, are with us all the way from Thailand. And uh, again, they've been serving there for a number of years. I learned in the first service, this is their first time back in eight years. Although you guys were supposed to be here a couple years ago, and then, you know, something happened. Um, so we're happy to have them here this morning, and I'm just going to let them introduce themselves, and we'll hear a bit about their ministry. Yeah, thank you, Bob. <clears throat> um, I'm going to let my wife uh, introduce our family to you so you can get a taste of Thailand. We're going to do it bilingually. So we're missionaries from Chiang Mai, Thailand. We've lived there for eight years. I grew up in Millington. My parents still live here. We have a total of six kids. The two oldest are in Virginia. The other four are here. Okay, My name is Tihi and I'm 17. My name is Carmen, I'm 12. I'm Zoya and I'm 11. And I'm Elden and I'm 9. Well, thank you so much for that introduction. There's going to be a test later on to see how much Thai you remember from this. <laughs> uh, you guys have been with us for a long time, but for some that might not know you, could you tell us a bit about the nature of your ministry and what you do? Yeah, of course. Uh, we are crew staff. We've been staff for 20 years now. Um, we're with the Jesus Film Project. So just quick survey. Who's seen the Jesus Film or understand a little bit about it as a ministry? Okay. Uh, The Jesus film itself is a movie based on the Gospel of Luke. It follows pretty closely through Scripture, and it just tells the story of Jesus' birth, uh, life, death, resurrection, and ascension to to give someone a kind of a broad stroke of who he is and why he came. It was produced in 1979, so it's an old film, but since then it's been translated and dubbed into uh, almost 2,000 languages now, and more, more are coming up every day. So we live in Thailand, which is uh, pretty much the easiest country to live in, in Southeast Asia. But we work all across all of Southeast Asia. So we lead uh, Jesus Film engagement and direct how the Jesus Film is produced and used uh, from our office there in Thailand. Um, And we have a staff team there also that, that helps us out. 
Great. Well, since we're talking about salt and light this morning, um, I I had asked if you guys would think a little bit about uh, some stories of impact and how God has used you to be salt and light or how you've helped other people be salt and light as a result of your ministry. Yeah, thanks. Uh, I think I sometimes underestimate how impactful this tool can be. It's just a movie, but it's God's word. And um, we are deeply involved with the production of the tool in new languages across Southeast Asia. And recently, I was uh, just a couple months ago, I was in Indonesia assisting, uh, training some Indonesian nationals to travel and record their giant country of nearly 280 million people to record new languages for us for the Jesus film. So we translate the script with Bible translators, and then we would send these guys, these, team, these two teams of men and women, to go and uh, to record the film in these small, sometimes small dialects. So we were in, on the island of, of Western Java recording a dialect of Sundanese Banten called uh, Badui. It's a deeply Muslim people group, very few believers. Uh, so I was actually in their like tiny village town. We had made a recording booth in, in like this corner room of a hotel, you know, using just mattresses and some other things. And, and we've bought, we brought our recording equipment in there and I'm just attending this final, uh, the first of two actually training recordings for these Indonesians. So like it sometimes happens, Uh, in this small people group with very few believers, we actually ran out of willing voices uh, to record the film. We we need about 20 actors, and they're just volunteers, and and sometimes they they don't work out. So we got to the end of our pool of voices, and and sure enough, we still needed like six more people. So our our Indonesian recordists kind of bravely went out on the streets and and tried to find some folks who would come in and, and give us their voices to finish recording these, these parts, and they, in the parking lot, um, they found this guy who was a security guard for the hotel that we were in, and we needed him to play John the Baptist, and he had this <clears throat> kind of gruff voice, and we thought he would do a good job, but he's, this, he's Muslim, he's this Muslim guy, and he's, he wanted to know, so tell me more about what this is, and what are you doing, and who, what, what character am I playing, and well, John the Baptist, and he said, okay, what is, what is he, who is he? So they, had, they tried to explain baptism to him because that's a scene in the film. And I said, well, it's, it's uh, this sort of ceremony where you, where you present your heart to God and you declare to the community that you're turning away from your life of sin and you're turning to God. And, uh, and we do it by using water. And, and he's like, huh, okay. So it's like when Muslims wash before they go to God in prayer, right? I said, well, I... I kind of, I come on in. So, so he was willing to give us his voice, uh, and he's doing great. He's really strong, got this great gruff voice, and uh, and then we get to the scene where John the Baptist is in jail. He'd he'd insulted Herod, and he got thrown in jail, and and he he goes from this really gruff guy, strong and bold, to this sunken, sad man who kind of doesn't understand what's happening in his circumstances. Um, and he, this John the Baptist character, he, he looks out through the bars and he says to one of his guys, he says, go, go ask this Jesus, is he the Messiah or should I be waiting for someone else? Um, this is John the Baptist. He was there, right, right there when Jesus comes walking through this crowd gets down in the river, he baptizes him, Jesus comes up, and there's spirit shows up like a dove. Uh, they all had to feel the spirit's presence. He was there when we heard the, the voice that comes from the sky, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And now he's, he's wondering, his circumstances have gotten the better of him. Um, we, we talked this morning a little bit about living in a decaying world. How often do I look at my circumstances and wonder, is this this it? Is this the kingdom? Um, And that's what John the Baptist was feeling. So this Muslim man gets to the scene and he's sitting there looking at the lines for a while. And he kind of looks up to our Indonesian recordists and he says something. I can't understand a word of it. He says something 
And they talk back and forth for a few minutes. And then he says the lines. He does a great job, and we move on to the next scene. So I went to our, our guys afterwards, and I said, so what did, he, what, what did he say there? How did he do? And they, and they said, well, he got to these lines, and he said, you know, I'm going to have no trouble saying these words that John the Baptist said when he's in jail, because I kind of feel the same way. I'm, I'm, I'm really sad, and I wonder, is this Jesus the Messiah, or should I be waiting for someone else? And they, they told me this, and they said, we're going we're gonna to follow up with this man. Don't worry about it. We'll talk to him. But that just, the one small moment there helped me realize, how many times have I seen this film glossed right over that section? But even that small little moment can, can bring up these really raw details that, that can be used in someone's life to lead them to faith. This tool, we use it for evangelism and church planting and discipleship. Uh, it's a front lines tool all over the globe. I'm blessed to be a part of it. Uh, and I want to say, I just want to take this second to say thank you to you, Millington Baptist Church, for this, the way this community cares for us, cares for me and my family. Um, it's been a long time since we've been here in the States, and, uh, and I'm exhausted. If you can't tell, I get emotional and I'm exhausted. <laughs> Uh, you care for us so deeply, and uh, thank you, Pastor Bob and Pastor Dave, for, for uh, your leadership here and, and Millington Baptist Church. Uh, we love you. Thank you. Oh, oh. <laughs> thank you so much for just giving us a window into how God is using you. Um, before you go down, yeah. how can we pray for you? Yeah, thanks. Uh, we, so we're one week down. We've got five more weeks to go. Uh, we're traveling across the country, seeing lots of people in churches, and I've probably already talked too much in the last week. I don't know how I'm going to survive. Uh, it's, this is an important trip for me because this is our first time back in eight years. My younger children don't have memories of America. I want this to be significant for them, but, but to not wear them out at the same time. So we'll be uh, from here. We're going to D.C., and then... Ohio, Central Michigan, St. Louis, uh, Louisville, and we're going to end in California. Um, so it's going to be a great time, but I, just, I do want it to be significant for our family. And then, too, uh, we need more staff in, Tha in Thailand with Jesus Film. I, I trip over awesome opportunities constantly that I have to say no to. The harvest is plentiful, and it's everywhere. Uh, we desperately need more staff, and um, there are more opportunities than you could possibly know exist. So, Great. Thank you. Well, Kurt and Janet, the whole family, they'll be out in the foyer on, on your way out. Make sure you say hi, and I know you'd love to tell people more about, um, about your ministry and how they can be involved and pray for you. Uh, can I pray for you before you go down? All right, let's pray for the handovers. Heavenly Father, thank you so much, Lord, just for the good work that's happening in Southeast Asia. Lord, we know that you're using Kurt and Janet and their whole family just to be a light in a dark world. Um, thank you for the training that they're doing for people to be more equipped to share the gospel, to live out the gospel. Uh, Lord, I even pray for this, this Muslim uh, man that he was talking about, Lord, that you would continue to help him find his way to you, Lord, the true light of the world. So, Father, I pray that you go before them. I pray that you protect them, Lord. I pray that you bring the staff that they need. Uh, give them the strength and the endurance to get through their final travels and the different uh, churches they'll connect with. And would you give them an abundance of support and blessing. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thank you so much. So how do you make an impact? You develop an attractive taste you display an alternate society, and when you do, you lead people to active glory, glory that's given to God. That's the purpose of being salt and light. And so as you leave today, I just want to encourage you, go check out page 164 of your workbook um, to start thinking about how you can make that impact. There's a, there's a grid there that's going to help you think about your spheres of influence and ask yourself, where is God leading me? How can I be salt and light in my spheres of influence? And so personally, I'd just like to close this morning by sharing something I've been doing over the last year. <clears throat> For the last year, I've been part of something called the Colson Fellows Program through the Colson uh, Center for Christian Worldview. And this was an endeavor that was started by Charles Colson, whom I mentioned earlier in the message. And the goal of the program was to train believers to develop a Christian worldview and then go back to their spheres of influence to make a difference. 
It's not a program for pastors. It's a program for everyone. And the experience really has been just invaluable. Uh, We read books. We watch webinars. We discuss challenging issues in the culture. But in the end, the big thing is we create a three-year ministry plan based on where God is calling us to be salt and light. And the purpose is to make an impact for his kingdom. So there's been people that have created nonprofit programs to help the poor. Others have started outreach programs at their place of employment or their school. The sky is the limit based on what God is calling you to. And and Colson's vision for this program was this. God used somebody to impact his life and to bring him to Christ. He wanted to train others to impact the world. He wanted to start a movement of Christians who would be salt and light wherever they go. And this year, their program They're going to have over 750 people graduating at their main national conference, the Wilberforce Weekend, who was named after the man who helped end slavery in Britain. Colson fellows seek to be salt and light in a dark world. But that is something that all Christians are called to. We are called to impact those in our sphere of influence for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, Charles Colson passed away in 2012, and I was struck when I read the story of his funeral because everybody who attended wore a pin that simply said, stay at your posts. Now, Chuck was a Marine, and his favorite saying to tell others was simply this, Christians are called to remain at your post and do your duty for the glory of God and his kingdom. We may be in a minority, but we are called to remain salt and light, to live out a Christian view of the world in all aspects of life, and to not be afraid but to stay at your posts, and when you do, you'll make an impact for the glory of God and the advance of his kingdom. Amen? Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for each person who's here today. Lord, I pray that you would send us out. Holy Spirit, would you guide us? Would you give us your love for the world, Lord, for the lost? Father, help us to have hearts for people as you have hearts for people, Lord. Use us to make an impact And show us what it means to be salt and light in a dark, dying, and decaying world for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.